You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week, I'm speaking to a lady called Deb Burgard. Now, Deb was one of the founders of the Health at Every Size movement, and um, she has been involved in Health at Every Size well, just about everything about health at every size, I would think, for a very long time. And so she's this wealth of information on it. Um, I'm excited to talk to her. I love the conversation that I had with her. I'm certainly, I've already decided she's coming on this podcast again. Um, so if you have any if you have any questions for her after this conversation, then um, shoot me an email. But um, she's not just full of information and common sense. She's a really fun person, actually. Thoroughly enjoyed talking to Deb. So I'm just going to get out of the way and get on with this conversation. Here's Deb. So I'm Deb Burgard. I'm a psychologist and I'm one of the founders of uh, what has become known as the Health at Every Size model. Um, I'm also a fat activist and um, my specialty in psychology is treatment of eating disorders. So I work with people across the weight spectrum um, with every kind of eating disorder, um, you know, behavioral manifestation. So um, I've had my foot in both and all of these worlds for decades. <laughs> what, what led you to get into in particular the health of every size stuff? Well, I was um, coming out of uh, college in the late 70s. Um, I had been involved, very involved with second wave feminism with all of its uh, great things and limitations <laughs> as well. Um, and I came out to the uh, West Coast from the East Coast of the U.S. to do my graduate school in psychology training. And... Um, I really just wanted to create a space. My first, my first real, um, creation, I guess, uh, was my dance classes for, uh, what we were then calling larger, larger women. And, um, that was 1983. And I did a dance class that was really f advertised explicitly for women over 200 pounds and it was explicitly not uh, a weight loss space. It was a space to come in, you know, party and enjoy your body and be among other people who were also trying to do that. And um, I did that for most of the 80s and uh, wrote a book with Pat Lyons um, called Great Shape that we published in 1988, which was... Um, really radical at the time and is still radical, which is so depressing. <laughs> so what did Great Shape, what was radical about Great Shape? Well, Great Shape, in Great Shape, we talked about, basically I had already been working with intuitive eating and I was talking about, I wrote a chapter that was really kind of like, you know, intuitive movement. Like, you know, here's how you might get in touch with what it is that's really appealing to you about moving your body and here are some ideas and here's the process to go through to kind of think about that. And here's how to think about it for the rest of your life and so forth. So it was really 
Um, it was really looking towards the person's own body wisdom to guide them. That was radical. Um, it was also saying that fat people have no moral obligation to exercise. This was not a book that was kind of like, you know, you, you should get in shape and you'll be a good fatty if you do that. You know, we were really trying to say, no, no, um, you don't have to do this at all, but you have a right to do it and you have a right to access uh, spaces where your body is comfortable doing it and where the equipment fits you. And, you know, this is what's not terribly um, uh, ubiquitous now. And we really need to change that. And so, you know, the whole attitude of it is still radical because, you know, saying you don't have to change your body, it's, you know, you, your, your right to be in the world and your right to choose this or not choose this, prioritize it or not prioritize it, it's fine, whatever you want to do. And also that your guidance can come from inside of your own body, which is really, your body's not... Um, you know, uh, you're, you're basically this whole idea that you need experts to tell you, <laughs> you know, kind of what to do with all this stuff. Um, I mean, I really looked at, I've, I've enjoyed that about your approach and your work too, that you really speak so clearly about, you know, recovery being something that is so personal and is so creative and is a creative act and you use and call upon your own, um, your own wisdom here to kind of, you know, find those steps. I think that's so, so important and so lacking in a lot of the approaches to, you know, any of these issues. Which is sad because it's common sense, really, that if your body is, say, for example, asking you to eat, that that's probably what you should do. If your body's asking <laughs> you to rest, that's probably what you should do. And if your body's saying, I don't like this particular form of exercise, if your body is saying that, it doesn't matter what your doctor who's not in your body thinks, mm -hmm. you would think, wouldn't you? It's, it's common sense. Well, but after all of this um, kind of soaking in a culture that tells you that the reason that you're unhappy and that your life isn't the way it ought to be is something to do with your body and how you are or are not, you know, perfecting it or making it into a, an acceptable body, you know, of course people are doubtful about their own power to um, call upon changing that relationship with their body and not blaming their body for that bullshit. It's mm. just, you know, everywhere. Yeah. So seemed radical then and um, sadly does seem radical now. <laughs> so what happened after, after you wrote that book? Well, in, uh, the next few years, and I'd say the next five years um, after that, were really um, fruitful. A lot of the people who had been um, kind of individually realizing that the way they were trained to do the to do their professions, basically around these issues, was really problematic. And most, of, a lot of those people, in fact, were um, RDS and you know, they had been trained to do weight loss interventions. And so they would, I just think this is really important for current RDs to know that, you know, their profession, um, even though it sort of identified so much with, you know, weight normative um, training, um, and that's incredibly problematic. It is also that profession that um, was 
totally represented at the table when we were looking at what to do differently because those clinicians had looked at what happened with their clients. They looked at um, clients who had you know, tried to lose weight and regained it, clients who tried to lose weight and developed eating disorders. Um, you know, the very few, there were very few people who were sort of following the path that their training had uh, laid out for them. And for them to notice that and to have the courage to kind of say, this isn't what we want to be doing and what else could we be doing? You know, I just find that astonishing and wonderful and I just want to shout out to all those people and you know they came from all kinds of, of, of professions but I think for RDs especially when you've been trained that this is what you're supposed to do it's a pretty big ask to kind of figure out what else <laughs> what else makes sense so yeah we were we were pretty much um, finding each other this was pre-internet mostly you know, I guess yeah until about 1994 um, and so we were meeting, there were a bunch of people that were meeting in Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. We had found each other. People had found me because of my dance classes. They had found me because there was already um, a really great network of fat activists. In fact, fat activism here. And um, so the people who were coming together were, you know, some of them were professionals. Some of them were health clinic, health professionals and clinicians, fitness people. Some of them were um, artists, some of them were activists. And so the, the conversations that we were having, um, Pat Lyons, my co-author of Great Shape, really started these meetings. And the meetings were, were explicitly for us to feel less isolated in our, you know, kind of realization of all this stuff and to come together. And she would just have us go around the table and just say, what are you doing? You know, and what are you doing? And what are you feeling? And what are you running into here? And people would just tell their, you know, stories of what they were, you know, kind of experiencing. And by the time you got all the way around the table, you were like, oh, my God, you know, this is so amazing. You know, there's so many people doing this work, even though we were like, you know, 15 people. <laughs> We were feeling like, okay, so, you know, we're not all by ourselves. There's an illusion, you know, that we're all by ourselves, but it's because we're all sort of sitting in these different locations, you know, and having trouble being aware that there's a whole bunch of people who are sort of coming to this conclusion at the same time and trying to do something different. And so we were trying to talk about all of that. We were also trying to kind of find each other nation nationwide and internationally even, um, and people were beginning to have, you know, calls on the phone together where we were beginning to um, start to ask, you know, maybe we need, we need a name for this approach. And people have been calling it all sorts of things like non-diet and anti-diet. And um, there was a whole big discussion. I had been using the uh, language of health at any size uh, for some of my stuff online and, um you know, then they said, no, we want to do health at every size. And we had this big debate about the two. And I actually wasn't so thrilled with either of them. And I still am not. But oh. um, <laughs> so. little, little interject. But why? Why? Why not? I hadn't really thought about it. Well, health at every size has legitimately been criticized, I think, because um, there are some interpretations of it that sort of imply that, you know, it, there's some ways that people interpret it as healthist, you know, which is sort of because it starts with the word health that, you know, 
if you're a good fatty, you're healthy. And if you're not healthy, you're bad, you know, and that if you're not doing, if you're not, if your numbers aren't right, or you're not doing intuitive eating perfectly or whatever, that you must not be, you know, practicing this um, resistance. And, um, and so that's annoying to me. And also because it just has this very individualized kind of focus on practices. Like we, that's kind of where it started, which wasn't really where my, um, I didn't love that. You know, I felt like, you know, my focus was always kind of um, into in the sort of broader picture. I think I've, when I look back at my work, it's so much more focused on trying to change these structural uh, sources of weight stigma in medical practice and psychology and coaching and fitness. You know, it's kind of like saying to these structures, we got to change the structure. You know, it's not just about, not just about your attitude towards this person that you're working with and if you're nice to them or not, you know, it's, and as a lot of people will sort of say, we, we need to have a different conversation, you know, it's terrible. And then, you know, they're really basically saying, we need a nicer way to tell somebody their body's wrong, you know, which is <laughs> bullshit. So I was really, you know, I, I would have loved uh, a, a bit different moniker for all of this stuff. And as we've kind of gone along and had more iterations of this, we've, we've gone from kind of, you know, I like the I, I like the description of the traditional model as a weight normative model. I think that's a pretty accurate uh, way to describe it and what's wrong with it. But what we've kind of come up with sort of parallels a lot of activist movements where you kind of start off, you know, from the point of view of the dominant group that's sort of thinking about all this stuff, and that's fat white women mostly, you know, who were straight and cisgender and mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm saying we should get our health care you mean like well, what you we're not, we're not getting our privileges here you know and right and and then of course you get you know a lot more educated when people of color try to tell you what's wrong with that or people who are trans try to tell you what's wrong with that you know and um people try to really understand this more from a social justice perspective so we've kind of gone from the language of weight neutrality to the language of weight inclusive to the language of weight justice and, you know, you can kind of see how we're trying at each at each iteration to sort of deepen the critique and really understand the deeper roots of what's really the problem here. Um, so it's not so much about, you know, you need to do these practices, which is, I think was sort of the much more of an earlier stance about all of this. But really, practices account for maybe, you know, I don't know, 15 to 20% of the outcomes of health and the rest of it's the social determinants of health and genetics and, you know, other things that are very, very powerful um, that we're only going to be able to address if we stop focusing in this little neoliberal individual intervention. Um, you know, so yes, we want to, we all make a living doing this with individuals. And so I think that's sort of why we get a lot of, partly the reason why we get a lot of focus on this, but we, we can never forget, I think that, you know, people's exposure to oppression um, and discrimination for all sorts of reasons is something that absolutely floods the <laughs> causal picture here. And um, yes, we need to try to make these practices that really add to people's well-being, um, we need to make them accessible and we need to make environments that allow people to do them accessible for sure.
Um, so, but, you know, we just really need to kind of get that this whole exercise of ranking bodies um, in terms of their worthiness, which creates all the motivation for people to do all these really disastrous things to their bodies. Um, that is the issue here. And that has been going on for a million years in all sorts of ways, you know, when you look at the history of this country, um, U.S. and, you know, just European domination in general. You know? So this is all kind of, it's not, a, it's not a separate thing from white supremacy. It's not a separate thing from colonialism. It's another version of it. And, um, you know, the white people, the white women, myself included, who were sort of like, hey, you know, we were noticing that this was happening to us because, because we were separated from our white privilege around these issues. You know, we had the privilege of, we were, we were used to having the privilege of healthcare. And when somebody says, no, you don't get to have your procedure uh, because your BMI is too high, you know, that's, or you don't get insurance because your BMI is too high. That was one of, that was like sometimes one of the first times that somebody like me was going to have experiences that other people were having all along. So, Right, so that's where that's where the justice part really starts to come into it. And it sounds like this has evolved. It's it, it's evolved more than things have changed in the bigger picture. You know, it's saying that well, we haven't changed. Maybe attitudes haven't changed radically in the last however many years, but the understanding of what maybe health of every size and what all of these these issues are has evolved quite a lot within people who practice health at every size. Yeah, I mean, I would say things have gotten both better and worse, and things have not stayed the same in the broader culture at all. I mean, like, it's very dynamic. The amount of structural discrimination is much worse, I would say, um, without, in the U.S., um, it's the only kind of bright spot that's so tenuous is the, you know, ACA, where people can kind of get insurance who had... Uh, bigger bodies, you know, who, who would not have been able to get insurance before. But even when you get that insurance, now you've got all these barriers to getting the actual care once you're in the system. Um, but that's a good thing. You know, I don't want to <laughs> ignore that. And um, But the fact that there's so much codified weight stigma and bias and there's so much, basically the weight, the weight, um, I call it the weight cycling industry <laughs> because mm. I think it's really what it is. And that's why it makes money. Uh, and that's what it depends on. Um, it has actually been successful through the loophole in the ACA of workplace wellness programs, you know, but a lot of other, you know, with it sort of co-opting the, the American medical association as well. They've basically gotten this, um, they don't have to find dieters one by one anymore. They've got HR departments and physicians doing the marketing for them. And at this point, you know, if I was a physician, I had gone to eight years of, you know, post-grad training. And I was, you know, realizing that, you know, basically what I'm supposed to be doing now is being a marketer for the weight cycling industry. I would be as furious as some of my doctor friends actually are. so oh, well, I'm actually glad to hear that they are. But maybe yes. it's just because they're your friends. <laughs> and they're the type of people that you would be friends with. Because <laughs> I think plenty of doctors aren't furious and, and they should be. 
Yes, I agree. I think there should be a, a wellspring of resistance to all of this, but I feel like the doctors are sort of deer in the headlights too. You know, they're kind of, there's so much structural change that's going on for them in the industrialization of their profession, you know, where you've really gone from here's, here's a person who's thought of as an autonomous decider of what should happen here because they're a professional and they've got all this training. And now we're going to default down to a bunch of algorithms that are sort of, you know, decided by corporate interests. And this is what you're going to have to enact when you have a patient in front of you, whether you like it or not. You know, I mean, that, whoa, you know, I mean, to me, that's just, it's kind of rude, actually. Horrifying, you know, and, and, Ah, uh, you know, so there's, so that's gotten a lot worse. Um, I think that's really the thing. And then also sort of this idea that, you know, there's so much, basically a lot of the markets were drying up for the weight cycling industry in the late nineties. And there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of, uh, even, even the national institutes of health in 1993 or 1992, one or the other, I can't remember, um, put out this radical statement that um, if you, that basically was meant for consumers that said, even if you're looking at something that's um, a weight, quote unquote, weight loss uh, intervention, um, that's, you know, even supervised medically, if you can't get from them five years of follow-up data on everybody who's been part of that program and what's happened you know, in terms of safety and maintenance of weight loss, you shouldn't try it. That was amazing. And people were really beginning to wise up to all of these shenanigans. There was a book called um, Dieter's Dilemma uh, by Bennett and Gurin, and it was a huge bestseller. And so people were really becoming aware of this. There were a bunch of bankruptcies. And basically, there were a number of people in the industry that came together to form the Obesity Society, which is even in existence now and is even now trying to sort of position themselves as sort of a, spokes, a spokespiece for, you know, the patient, quote unquote, patient community, uh, people with, and they are using the language, they've co-opted the language from the disability community of, of saying persons with disability or actually persons with obesity, um, and they don't really represent those people. They represent the surgeons and the corporations and um, the pharmaceutical industry, and they're a bunch of lobbyists, and, um, you know, they, they act like they're creating all of this science um, that's neutral, right? So it's not at all, um, and um, they, are the re- they are sort of the – they started pumping out all of this um, PR over the next – know 10 20 years which basically was you know raising alarms about you know people's weights going up and what about this and about this and sort of be the same data but they would release it you know every few months in trickles like here's this state's you know version of this and here's the next state's version of this and here's this country's version of this and sort of you know they just hammered the public with all of this stuff and so they couldn't keep going back to the well of people who had basically been on to them. And so they, you know, and, you know, you could sort of see this in the last few years, they started going to other communities. They started going to black community. They started going to um, market towards men. Um, and now, and of course, 
the pressure on men in terms of perfecting their bodies and having to do this project is has only gotten worse. Um, and so it's gotten really bad in a lot of ways. Now, at the same time that all this is happening, you know, all the work that we were doing all these years in our activism to create to create what we were talking about as some way to resist all of this. That has also grown, right? So you've got both of these trends at the same time. And I started the, my body positive website, you know, in the mid nineties. And um, it's still there. It still looks as creaky as <laughs> <laughs> probably about, you know, the year 2000 version, you know, and we're trying to figure out how to archive it at this point. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's been sitting there and people used it like crazy. They used it. And also there was this wonderful organization um, here in the Bay Area called The Body Positive. And, you know, the, the organizers of that, you know, and I basically figured out that we were both using that language back in the day. And, you know, we, we, we sort of kept on, you know, doing our work. And so all these people who had sort of, um, you know, been thinking about how to do this resistance work, you know, whether they were health at every size or body positive or, you know, non-diet or whatever, you know, whatever they were from whichever direction they were coming to this, um, you know, they, they've been at, They've been at work this whole time. And then, you know, when the bloggers, the era of the bloggers kind of came along, that was huge as well. And, um, you know, it's just and then social media, you know, kind of built on that. And so then you've got communities in, um, you know, in the fatosphere or um, communities online where people really were doing kind of the exact same thing that we were doing back in the you know, late 80s, early 90s, when we started meeting together, which is like, we could find each other. Now we could find each other. And when there's a problem in the, when there's the, when the issue is really in the culture at large, you know, one of the solutions is really to have subculture and the subculture that, that is trying to heal whatever that is, right? And so, um, I just don't think you do this one by one. I think that most people are going to feel like when they come to me um, and we're working individually, they will say to me, you know, this all is so much of a relief to me. This works fine when I'm in your office. And then when I go outside, I don't know what I do anymore because I'm back in the middle of my family that thinks this other way, or I'm back in my, my doctor's office and he or she thinks this way, or, um, you know, I don't know what to do in my workplace or whatever. And so it really takes off when people start to find each other outside of my, of our individual therapy. And I've done groups for that reason. Cause I think, um, you know, when people find each other and can be um, kind of supportive to each other, it really helps with resisting the harm from a lot of this stuff. Yes. Um, yeah. So all that. And so, <laughs> This is this has been sort of this is this is what's happened and how this this community has progressed and changed. Where's it going to go next? What what would you what do you see happening in the future? Oh, well, um, well, I think we I think we have 
we've been so lucky to benefit from the labor of a lot of these activists from marginalized communities who have basically said, look, you can't just, you can't just look at this from point of view of fat white women. You know, we have to kind of look at all of these intersections and all of these ways that, um, you know, people are harmed by these ideas and we have to find our solutions by working together from the ground up with the anti-oppression work of dismantling this stuff and coming up with something else. So for me, it has been a kind of um, my, my kind of struggle, I think in the last few years is trying to figure out, okay, I need to do this anti-racism work with, with my white peers who may or may not have had exposure to this. And, you know, we're just going to keep pumping out the stuff that we've been trained to do if we don't learn how to do it differently um, on the one hand, but on the other hand, also being able to, you know, contribute support, labor, um, money, resources, whatever we can um, in working with people to create these new structures that, are going to actually meet people's needs in a more um, in a more broad-based way, so that the most marginalized people are taken care of and not just sort of left out of the whole planning process um, from the beginning. And I think I think that's how I imagine things going forward. Is that there's got to be this sort of you know two there's there's work to do in both of these directions. Um, and this is what I've seen in the evolution of um, this little organization, the Association for Size, Acceptance, and Diversity, for example, where we have this, you know, mostly white organization that's sort of waking up to the ways that we're actually part of the problem here. <laughs> we're not really, we're not really a comfortable place for people of color to be there because there's so many you know, sort of clueless things happening among the white people. Um, and once people of color are beginning to educate us about this and we're trying to have these conversations, there's all this white fragility react reaction, and, you know, people who are, you know, freaking out at why is this politics? We don't need politics. We are doing this other thing. And, oh, actually, you know, the sort of integration of, you know, the knowledge that this, this thing that we tried to do from the very beginning from the very beginning, it was a form of resistance to oppression. And it was based in fat activism. And the fat activism um, was, uh, was, was, a, was, was done in the 70s. Um, and even then, there was a critique from the fat people of the fat underground of the medical vector of oppression of fat people and how wrong all of this policy was based on information that was already there in the medical research. It was already there. We already knew about set point theory. We knew about it since the 50s. We already knew that this stuff didn't work. We knew about it from 1960. You know, we knew when people were that who were supposedly experts, you know, like Stunkard, were saying this stuff doesn't work. And so 
you know, they were already saying, here's a whole bunch of stuff that we've unearthed from these medical libraries. Look at this. Right. And so, you know, understanding that this is where this comes from. Um, yes, a lot of us had one foot in fat activism and another foot in, you know, eating disorder, you know, recovery and research and treatment. And that's the point, you know, that they are related. They are yes. related. Yes. <laughs> like this is not something that's, you know, two different silos. You know, this is, and this is, of course, something that my work just was, you know, it was impossible to me not to kind of make all these connections. That is one of the reasons why it's so completely bewildering to me how there's so many professionals in the eating disorder community who don't make, who don't seem to get this, you know, who really seem to get this at all. But for me, there was like no way that I was going to sort of take, you know, if I, if I'm working with somebody who's coming to my office and basically everybody agrees that their pursuit of more weight suppression is a problem. And the reason that we all can really see that is because they're so thin Right. And that's why it's not ambiguous to anybody, you know, like kind of this is all something we agree on. But, you know, the truth is that what's really problematic about that is the way that their lives are being stolen from them. And that, you know, whatever is making this um, happen is is the problem. It's not what they weigh. Right. And so here I have another person who comes into my office who's doing the very same things and, you know, they're at a higher weight and people all around them are slapping them on the back, even their doctors. And to me, like, it's very clear, this person's got anorexia. They've got anorexia, even though, but they started at a higher weight, you know, <laughs> there's just this arbitrary truth to this, that they started at a higher weight. And I am not going to collude with, you know, this person's behaviors and thoughts and beliefs about, you know, kind of how they need to suppress their weight when I don't for a thin person. That makes no sense at all. And, you know, people with higher weight anorexia are are barred from treatment. Essentially, they don't get diagnosed and they can't stay in treatment and they can't get into treatment. And, you know, researchers just I just got back from you know, last uh, couple months ago, the uh, International Conference on Eating Disorders, and yet again, every time I went up to the, the mic, kind of trying to kind of, you know, talk about this, and, you know, the researchers who are defining anorexia, you know, as a BMI less than 18.5, yeah. and, and I'm like, you're not even going to be able to solve this research question. How do you answer the question if you don't have all the people who have this disease? Absolutely, in you're not collecting data from the people right. in larger bodies who have anorexia. Absolutely. Right. And this was, and so then the defensive response from the researchers are, you know, like, we need data, not opinions. And I'm like, right. right. <laughs> right. But it's just so tricky because the damn DSM. Um, I did a video on you can have anorexia at any size, YouTube. Uh, a week or so ago and uh, you know there's a lot of people that are fully are there and understand it but there is also people that say you don't know the defini definition of anorexia you should check out the dsm-5 <laughs> just like well, actually, the dsm-5 the the, the 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 there's been controversy about this from the beginning you know i've been talking to tim walsh from the very beginning about all this stuff right and saying you should just call this you know disorders of the pursuit of weight loss that's you need i mean you won't feel like maybe we need something for pica that's sort of not right that. right 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 but, but you pretty know, much covers it 
disorders of the pursuit of weight loss is pretty much, you know, going to cover a lot of it. Not even, it, it's not totally going to cover it because there's going to be people who, whose sort of experience of restriction is because of food insecurity and economic problems and things like that. And we don't want to, you know, eliminate them out of the, you know, being able to get treatment and so forth. And that's wrong because, even if physiologically what we're talking about is that restriction is kind of at the heart of all of these different problems. Yes. Um, you know, the reasons that people are, are barred from access to food vary. And that is a real, um, that is something that's, you know, got to be taken into account, of course, in all these prevention and treatment issues. And so all of that is really important. However, I think, um, the notion that we could, um, we could sort of do away with the small, medium, and large kind of categorizing that we're doing and that we've been doing all these years. Like, what is that? That is so bizarre that that's even a part of our... I can't think of anything in medicine that is designed like that, that your disease changes based on what your body is. You're like, what? Mm. <laughs> what is that? You know, and I was just doing... A, I was just doing... I'm part of the WHO, um, you know... Uh, clinicians who sort of give feedback around these um, mental health diagnoses for DS for you know ICD eleven you know and and I'm trying to write about this stuff because even the thing that they sent to me was so absurd you know and it was you know here's the definition of bulimia here's the definition of BED and you know they're trying to sort of carve out something about you don't really have an eating disorder if it's a culturally sanctioned activity that you're doing. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is some new fuckery here. Yeah. Like, this is sort of like, okay, so if, if everybody wants you to diet and you uh, are restricting and you, you, you know, and you, you really have anorexia, but we're not going to call it that. We're just going to call it dieting because your weight is not low enough for us to call it anorexia. You know, we're not going to have to treat you. We're not going to have to, we're not, you know, it's like a fetishization of um, the kinds of, um, features that I think the, I think, you know, when people first hear about the sort of features of anorexia, um, they, they get stuck, you know, um, on these, um, you know, like this sort of morbid fascination, you're like, oh my God, you know, how thin bodies could get around this or how people could starve themselves or they get kind of, you know, stuck on these things as if they are the point, you know, and it's the, it's the viewpoint of the observer that has nothing to do with the lived experience of the disease that is, that is, you know, kind of leading to all of this distortion. And again, this is why I really am so grateful to you for what you're doing, because I think it's going to be the voices of the people with a lived experience. You know, when you think about what's going to happen in the future, you know, it's the, it's, it's, all of these categories have to be reimagined from the point of view of the people who are actually the experts on what this is. And the people who are experts are the people who have the lived experience of what this is. It's, it's so frustrating, actually. Uh, even when, when I was sick, it, it would be frustrating to be told by somebody who I knew had no lived experience of what I was experiencing, them telling me, in their opinion, what I was experiencing. It's, it is very frustrating, especially, I think, and more so probably for adults um, who do question more than we do when we're children. 
about what somebody's telling you about yourself. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's, it's, there's something called in psychology, there's something called the fundamental attribution bias. And it is the phenomenon where if you have a bunch of observers who are watching somebody do something and you say to the observers, why did, why do you think the person did this? They will almost always locate the explanation in some personality trait of that person. But if you ask the person who's actually doing the acting, why did you do this? They will almost always talk about something in the environment that they're mm-hmm. responding to. Mm-hmm. Right? And so this fundamental attribution bias creates all this trouble when it comes to, you know, these disease definitions, right? Because it's like a bunch of, you know, anthropologists who are standing around clucking over the odd behavior of the natives right (laughs) it's 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 absolutely racist and imperialist and colonialist and awful and it's not you know it's just not even questioned when it comes to medicine yeah I think that that's a really incredible point (laughs) and I know that many people listening will really thank you for saying that well you know I have to thank the people who've you know, done the, the emotional labor of, of trying to make this more apparent to me, you know, and, um, you know, it's just really humbling for me after all these years, you know, to just feel like I can look back on things and just think, oh, my God, cringeworthy moment, you know, when I wrote this or <laughs> I'm sure. just, yeah, and, and then I sit there and I think, you know, actually, I'm kind of glad that that's true because if I had not learned, I would still be saying this stuff, right? I wouldn't be cringing because I wouldn't know, you know, and I just have to, you know, really just be so, so grateful for the sense that I have of this work sort of placing me in uh, you know, a river of humanity. <laughs> you know? and we, we all, you know, each each sort of person who's sort of up at bat, you know, kind of standing on the shoulders of the work of the people who came before, you know, I just feel like that's, um, you know, that's just absolutely critical to, to keep acknowledging, you know, and, you know, this has been my, you know, I'm in the, wherever I am in the middle and the towards the end, I don't know, you know, in the stretch of time that I'm, you know, kind of available on this planet to do this work. But, um, you know, I just feel so connected to the work of all these other people, you know, who have been addressing this in some form for hundreds or even thousands of years, you know. Um, Deb, if people want to find out more about you, where can they do that? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> like I said, I have these these ancient um, ancient things up on the on the web. Um, pretty much, if you just Google me, I'm pretty sure. I and mean, basically, people can find me by googling me. You know, and there's a lot of different um, representations. You know, on online of this, the work that I do. Um, there's uh, the bodypositive.com. Uh, website has my phone number at the bottom of every page 
Um, so even though it's really creaky and old, we're, you know, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And, um, hopefully I will get the bandwidth to, you know, really kind of revamp some of this stuff so that it's a lot more accessible online because, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to, um, my, my favorite thing to do is to really, um, you know, work with people around this transition and help support those, you know, those sort of moments when people are kind of going, I don't really want to keep doing this, you know, but what else do I want to do? Um, you know, people who are in the field or uh, people who are sort of making this transition or people even, you know, in the public who are sort of saying, I don't want to do this to my body anymore, um, whatever that is. <laughs> um, and so I do a lot of work with people you know, kind of one-to-one or or groups or, or in, um, you know, in workshops or in conferences or things like that. So um, I'm, you know, my work is kind of all, all around. It's also um, very likely that I'll always be involved with, you know, ASDA and ASDA has a conference um, this um, August in Portland, which is going to be, I think, pretty interesting. And so that's another you know, kind of organization that you can usually, you know, um, track me down. <laughs> well, that's another person that I could have spoken to for hours. I, don't, I hope you know more about Health at Every Size now. And please don't be intimidated. I know it seems like there's a lot in there. I know it seems like it's, um, it's quite political, really, isn't it? I strongly recommend if you are sitting there thinking, gosh, I don't really know what I'd say about Health at Every Size now without putting my foot in my mouth. Go and join a group on social media and watch and read and listen for a while. And you'll absorb so much. And there's so much great information out there. Wonderful people like Deb, who are very clear and have been in it for years and have seen all of the changes. And all of those things are reflected in the things that they write and the things that they put down into these groups. So um, Facebook groups, search Health of Every Size and you will find some. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Cheers and cheerio.